0: Well, we're launching a brand new series, as you may have detected. Uh, This morning is going to run for the next eight weeks. Uh, It's called I Believe in God, but I want to uh, just explain a bit of the background behind why we're doing this series Um, after that we're going to be diving into Galatians chapter 3 and a bit of chapter 4 as well. So uh, if it adds to your sense of security feel free to kind of be uh, flicking to the passage so you're ready when we go for it. Uh, But I want to just give you a bit of the thinking first off behind this series. Uh, I grew up in a church which very much emphasised the importance of becoming a Christian. Now at this point please don't hear me wrong. This is also a church that would emphasise something of the importance of becoming a Christian as well. But what would happen is that every year the youth group would go away for a camp and right at the end of the week there'd be this big meeting where the evangelist would be wheeled out to preach the gospel message and make an appeal for people to respond. Now again, please don't hear me wrong. I'm all for youth camps, I'm all for preaching the gospel, all for making appeals for people to respond. But what would happen is loads of people would pray the prayer and then excitedly kind of call their parents to tell them the news that they've prayed the prayer and now they're a Christian. And the assumption that their parents uh, made was, if they were Christians, was that this was just great news. I mean, they breathed breathe this huge sigh of relief. It was kind of like, job done. Now they've prayed the prayer, we, we don't need to worry about them anymore. The thinking was that Christianity is a little bit like a disease and if people could just get it, if people could just catch it, then everything would automatically just kind of turn out okay. Once they would Prayed the prayer and got in on the whole deal, it was all supposed to just automatically work out and they'd be transformed into this wonderful Christian person. But what I've observed over the years is normally speaking, that's not really how it works. Christianity isn't like a disease you you try to get just by praying a prayer, and then suddenly, magically and mysteriously, your whole life automatically changes just like that. That is not how it tends to work, and it didn't work. I mean, I could stand here and, and list person after person who I grew up with, who in the moment believed and prayed a prayer, but went away no different and right now would be absolutely nowhere with God. That's my church background. Others of you maybe grew up in a slightly different tradition. Your parents made sure that you were baptised or you were christened or maybe you were dedicated as an infant. The thinking was, as long as you got some kind of a blessing from a church leader, that would somehow give you a whole better quality of life and guarantee that you got into heaven when you die. And maybe your parents aren't particularly happy that you're coming along to this church where we don't do any of that stuff. In fact, maybe they're making life a little bit difficult for you right now uh, because they're insisting that their grandchildren, if you've produced any for them, are going to be baptised or they really must be christened or you must at least get them dedicated because as long as they get splashed with a bit of water or get a blessing from a religious person, then, then they're bound to be okay. Not making fun or anything, but that's just the belief system. If I can just get them through that process and I can breathe a sigh of relief, because somehow, mysteriously, they'll be sorted for the rest of their life. But again, experience teaches, that's really not how it works. Then there's another group of you, and maybe you grew up in a tradition that was totally focused on believing the right thing. You know, you'd hear doctrinal sermons week after week after week. The whole goal was to get everyone to believe correctly, and it didn't really work itself out in any kind of practical, applicable way, but you were theologically very sound. Now again, I don't want you thinking that I'm somehow dismissing the importance of having great Bible knowledge. I mean, over the last month, we've kind of laboured that point. Read the Bible, fall in love with the Bible. You need God's Word. But if that's all you do, that's not the whole picture. I'm telling you, if that's all you have, it's just Bible knowledge, is pretty worthless. Some of you who are single, I don't know, maybe your parents are praying that you find a nice Christian husband or a nice Christian wife. It's like, if you put Christian A and Christian B together, you'll have a fantastic marriage. But, as many people in the room could testify, putting two people together who believe all the right stuff doesn't guarantee a thing. Just because you believe all the right stuff doesn't guarantee you're going to do all the right stuff. Listen, there is no inherent value this side of eternity in simply believing all the right stuff and that's the message that we're going to keep coming back to through this series. Faith, separated from application, is pretty useless, it's worthless Won't do you a whole lot of good at all. Now, I know that what I'm about to say may well shock a few people, but I think there is actually more than one kind of atheist. There's the philosophical, obvious kind of atheist who has no belief in God whatsoever. I guess we're comfortable with that. But then there's what might be called a Christian atheist. A Christian atheist is someone who says, well, yeah, I can believe in God and yet still live for all practical purposes as if God doesn't really exist. There can be this gap between what I say I believe, that there's this powerful God and he's looking out for me and really I ought to obey him because he's God and he's holy and all the other things we're singing about a few moments ago. There there can be a gap between that and the way I actually live my life. I mean, I can still live as though I'm struggling on my own. I can still live as if my time and my money and my gifts all belong to me, as if I can obey or not obey as I please, as is convenient for me. It's like there's this gap between what I say I believe and the way I am actually living my life. That could be called Christian atheism. And so, What I want to do over the next couple of months is try and help close that gap and close that gap towards your practice matching your beliefs rather than actually your beliefs deteriorating towards your current practice. I'm looking to close the gap in a positive way, I don't know, maybe you're a member of the church but you're secretly ashamed of your past still or or perhaps you've heard about the love of God, You you sing about it most Sundays but you're still not really convinced that God could ever love you or though you're convinced that God exists, it's like your prayer life doesn't really reflect that or or perhaps you know what God wants you to do but you'd still rather do what you want to do. Possibly You, you believe in heaven and hell but sharing your faith with others is still way too intimidating for you. Or, or maybe you believe in God but don't really see much need for the church. Those are some of the issues we're going to be touching on in the next few weeks. It's my conviction that what we do, how we live our practice in day-to-day life, flows out from who we are. That the, the way to close this gap between what we say we believe and the way we live isn't by just me kind of standing up here and telling you what to do and make you feel guilty and condemned for kind of not living it out but more than anything else I believe it's most effective for you to understand the implications of what you believe. I want to lay a strong foundation for you of what you believe so you grasp it, you see it, you get it and for that to then impact the way you live your life. And so for the rest of our time today I want us to look quite closely at what Paul wrote to the church in Galatia. We're going to pick it up in Galatians 3 verse 26. This is what Paul writes to these believers. He's explaining to them who we are in Christ. And it's my prayer that we would grasp this today in a way that changes our life. Verse 26, Galatians chapter 3. So in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he's really no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are his son, God has made you also an heir. This passage is one of the clearest places in the whole Bible where Paul just expands on what's sometimes called the doctrine of adoption. That God actually adopts you as his son or his daughter, if you come to know and trust Jesus. However, adoption back in Paul's day worked quite differently on a number of levels to the way it works today. So, what I want to do is try to emphasize some of those differences so you can grasp something of the richness and something of the privilege and something of the wonder of what Paul's talking about in this passage. So, First difference so the first thing you need to grasp about adoption is this: first of all, to be adopted back in paul 's day meant to be given a fantastic future. The single most important aspect of adoption in Paul 's day was this connection between adoption and inheritance now here 's where it gets a little bit different. You see in our day. I guess we mostly think about adoption as something you do for an orphan, someone who doesn't have parents. You, you take them into your home in order to give them a family. In Paul's world, adoption was done mostly by the wealthy, the influential and the powerful, but it wasn't about taking care of orphans, it wasn't about providing a home for people without a family, it was more about passing on the family's estates and the family's line to the next generation. It was done, really, to ensure the survival of a family. You see, if the head of the family didn't have any male heirs, that was a problem to him. If he didn't have a male heir, then the family, and all of its wealth, and all of its influence, would go to someone else. And so the head of the family would select a male heir through the process of adoption to make sure that his family and his estate and his influence would last on into the future. So when he was going to adopt, the head of the family didn't usually look for an orphan who didn't have a family. When orphans got taken in, it was generally to become a family slave the head of the family was more concerned with finding someone who who they thought was worthy of carrying on the family's name and the family's work. In other words, to be adopted in that world was a tremendous honour and a fantastic opportunity. It meant the head of what was normally an influential family chose you because he thought you were special chose you because he believed in you in some way. To be adopted by a great, powerful, wealthy, influential household was a bit like winning the lottery. It was the chance of a lifetime. The the head of the family was promising to bless you with everything he had. And Paul is saying, if you have been adopted by God... This is you. You now have a fantastic future ahead of you. This is why Paul says in chapter 4 verse 7, if you're adopted as a son, since you're a son, God has also made you an heir. Adoption means that whatever has gone on in your past, whatever's happened in your life up until now, you have a glorious future in front of you. It changes absolutely everything. You know, I often think that we focus a bit too much on what God has done for us in the past. Now it's glorious, we worship him for that, but I think we also need to focus on what he has saved us for, relationship with him. Every spiritual blessing that is ours in Christ. Eternity spent enjoying a wonderful new heaven and new earth with no sin and no pain and no suffering, knowing God completely. So much of the motivation given in the New Testament for persevering through trials and resisting temptation and living a pure life, flows out from the real substantial hope of what's to come. And Paul here is calling us to not only believe it, but also to live in the good of it. To be adopted means being given a fantastic future. Secondly, it also means forgiveness from old debts. In Paul's day, families would get into financial problems. Sometimes fathers would be forced to sell their children into slavery in order to get more money. Worse still, when that father died, his biological son would be obligated to pay off all of his father's debts. But if that son got adopted by another family he was set free from, redeemed is kind of like the technical language, he was set free, he was redeemed from the debts that were attached to his old family. So, if old creditors came after you, after you'd been adopted, you could just point to your new adoptive father and say, well, take it up with him. I I have a new family now. And again, Paul is saying, this is you, if you've been adopted by God, it's not just that so you can look forward to a great inheritance, it means right here, right now, you are free from your moral debt. Quick show of hands, anybody in this room ever committed at least one sin in their life? Uh, that is almost everyone, uh, and those who haven't put their hands up are lying, so again, that, that is Everyone this applies to all of us. Now I'm guessing there are probably a whole bunch of people in this room who even now are still carrying guilt and shame and condemnation over the things they've done in the past. Now, if that's you, you must hear this. Paul is telling you that if you have been adopted by God, you don't have to carry that stuff around anymore. You've been released, you've been set free from it. He says in chapter 4 verse 5, God sent his Son to redeem, to set free those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. And so, when condemnation or shame, or guilt come calling, all you need to do is point to your Heavenly Father and say, take it up with Him. Adoption means you have a whole new forgiveness and again, Paul would say, don't just believe it, don't just kind of hold it in some kind of knowledge in your mind, no, this is truth, you you need to live in the good of today. Sadly, Paul goes on to tell us that Adoption also means a whole new security. Now back in Paul's day, insecurity ran very, very deep. So the act of adoption would involve a pretty elaborate ceremony, Here's what would happen. If if a biological father was going to give up his son for adoption, he would sell him to a mediator, to a third party. The mediator would purchase the son from the biological father, then release him back to that biological father and they'd repeat this little kind of act three times. After the third time, the son would then belong to the mediator and the mediator would bring that son to his new adoptive father, and he'd make him his legal son. Now, you might think, oh, what's the point of that? Well, the purpose for that kind of cumbersome ceremony was biological fathers would often sell their son into slavery, as we've seen, in the hope that they might be able to buy their son back if they ever made enough money. But if they then got into more financial trouble later down the line, they'd be forced to sell their son all over again. And and this could happen repeatedly. you imagine? how that would breed just a whole load of insecurity in the child. It's like they'd live in constant fear of being sold all over again. The point of this ceremony was to underline to the adopted son, you will never be sold again. Once you are taken in by this new family, you belong forever. This is an irreversible, irrevocable promise. Imagine how that must have felt. There is a father out there who who now believes in you and who's saying no matter what you will always be my son. Adopted sons were actually more secure than biological sons, they could never be given up and again Paul's saying here this is you. God wants you to be secure in Him, no matter what the circumstances. Anyone here know any insecure people? God says, I don't want you to have to live like that. All the things that people are desperately trying to engineer in the hope of finding more security, more money, better health, more attractiveness, more success, more stuff that will never get you there. That will never get you the security you crave. But God says, I am willing to give it to you. If you'll allow me to adopt you, you can be secure. You you don't have to go through life battling against these feelings of insecurity the whole time. I've chosen you. I've purchased you at a great price. I accept you. I love you. And nothing is ever going to be able to change this, giving you a whole new security. And once again, for fear of repeating myself, this isn't just something to believe in, it's something for us to live in the good of right now. Adoption means a new security for us today. Fourthly, adoption also means you get a brand new identity, much like today, back in Paul's day, when you got adopted, your adoptive father would give you a new name. It had changed, I guess, both the way you regarded yourself, but also the way other people looked at you. And again, there, there was an elaborate ritual involved in this. It, it, it worked a bit like this, it was called the introductions. An adoptive father and his son would go into the temple together and an animal would be sacrificed. And the adoptive father would put his hands on that sacrificial animal and swear or make an oath that the child was now going to be his son. And then he'd introduce the new son to other members of the household. They'd formally acknowledge it, yep, this is now his son. Then his name would be entered into the official registry. It was set in stone. Now once those introductions were made. No one could dispute that this child belonged to this Father. And this is what Paul is saying here in chapter 3 verse 26, he says, so in Christ Jesus you are now all sons of God through faith. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. He's saying, if you've been baptised into Christ then you've become part of the family, You've been adopted by a great father with a great name. You are now in Christ. Now, it's by way of aside at this point. You may have noticed that Paul uses the word sons here, even though he goes on to say in the next few verses that in Christ there's neither male nor female. You might be sitting there as a female thinking, well, this is great, but I don't want to be a son. I'd rather be a daughter. And so why does Paul insist On using sons rather than something a little more inclusive. Well, there is a reason behind this. Back in the ancient world, do you know how many girls ever got adopted? Anyone want to guess? None. No girls ever got adopted. If they were orphaned, they might be brought up in another family, usually to become a servant, but they didn't get legally adopted because back then a girl couldn't become head of the household. But Paul is saying here that now what earthly fathers only gave the sons, the heavenly Father is giving to sons and daughters, to male and female alike. He's saying, regardless of your gender, we all have the privileges of sonship, which is why he insists on calling you a son. There's more privilege in his thinking in that day, in that term. You know, We live in a world where people just go crazy trying to prove I'm somebody. It's like the whole identity is wrapped up in how they look and what they wear and where they live and what they drive and where they work and whether or not they're in a relationship. All the time they're saying, look at me, look at me, I mean, look at my job, look at all my accomplishments, look at all my stuff. Listen, you don't need to live like that anymore. You can just resign from that whole insane race right now. You're a child of God. What could ever look better or more impressive than that? It it doesn't matter what other people think of you anymore. Adoption means you have a whole new identity and it's not defined by what you have or you haven't got. It's not defined by how others view you or don't view you. It is not defined by whether you're married or single, divorced, with kids, no kids. It's defined by the fact that God has chosen you to bear his name. He's given you a whole new identity. And then fifthly, to be adopted means you can also look forward to a whole new freedom. Here's something else about the way that adoption worked back in Paul's day. Head of a household would adopt a child but if that child was still really young the head of the household would then need to think through what would happen if they died before their adopted son came of age. So what they'd do they'd arrange in their will for a child to be cared for by a guardian. Now legally to be under a guardian was pretty much the same as being a slave under a slave master. They'd basically have all rights over the child until they came of age. Some guardians were better than others, but if you had a bad one of these, you would be desperately waiting for Independence Day. You'd be counting down the days until you'd be free, until you'd finally come into your inheritance. Now this is the scenario that's the backdrop for what Paul is going to say about you and me in chapter 4 verse 1. He says, what I'm saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Like There's another picture here. Is the whole world being under bondage, being in slavery to this harsh guardian. Sometimes Paul talks about people who are under bondage, in slavery to the law, to legalism, to rule keeping. Other times, in other places, Paul refers to people who are under bondage to their desires and appetites and impulses. Either way is bondage. Either way it's slavery. Now, you could put yourself either side of that, or even both sides of this, under bondage to rule-keeping and guilt, or slaves to habits and desires. You you just can't break free from. But the promise here is that it doesn't have to stay that way. There is a day coming that spells freedom from bondage to that harsh guardian. Paul says, alludes to this in verse 4, he says, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. When the time had come, God sent his son. Remember we talked about a mediator, when a son was going to be adopted there'd be a mediator who'd pay the price for adoption and God sends His very own Son to redeem us, to set us free from the power of sin and death and guilt. The Father sent His own Son to be the mediator, to pay the price and the price He pays, remarkably, is His own life. I mean, no mediator ever gave His own life. That's what this mediator did for us. He was the one sacrificed to make the introductions between us and his Father. This is how Paul puts it in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5. This is such rich language. He says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. This is a phenomenal message. This is what we believe if we're Christians. In his life and through his death on the cross, Jesus pays the whole price so you can be adopted. You have a heavenly Father and he believes in you and he chooses you and he wants to bless you with absolutely everything he has, so that you can then spread the influence of his family in this pretty messed up world that he still cares so passionately for. You have a new future, you have a new forgiveness, you have a new security, you have a new identity, you have a new freedom and it's all through Jesus, it's all through grace The big question is, do you actually live like that is true or do you just say it? Are you in practice who you say you are? There was a famous preacher called D.L. Moody, he coined a phrase for this notion of Christian atheism that I've been talking about, for this gap between our beliefs and our practice. He says, very often, we live under or beneath our privilege. It's like we have this awesome opportunity to live like people who have a future and forgiveness and identity and security and freedom. Yet my fear is that many of us, for whatever reason, choose to live Beneath our privilege. It's like being given this fabulous gift and then just neglecting it. This remarkable gift we've been given and just throwing it away. Paul says, You have this great promise. If you are a son, then you're an heir. That's the whole point of this adoption deal, it's a gift beyond our wildest imagination. There's a father who loves you and wants you to live this kind of life. If you're a son, then you are an heir and the promise of this inheritance isn't just something that's going to come after you die, it's not kind of stored away way into the future. Notice part of what Paul's saying here is that We used to be under the control of this harsh guardian. It could be the law and rules, it could be bondage to appetites and habits and desires. But he says the time for freedom has fully come now. Jesus has come now. We've been set free. Now, the question is, am I now living in all the good of this? Or or am I living beneath the privilege? Paul goes on to say in chapter 4, verse 6, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Or as Paul puts it in Romans 8, verse 15, the spirit you received doesn't make you slaves so that you live in fear again, rather the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are now God's children. Abba as being a dodgy 1970s Swedish pop group, is also an Aramaic word for, I'd say that or else your mind would have been going in another direction, it's an Aramaic word for father. It's the word that Jesus himself used in intimate prayer to his father. It kind of means dear father. It it speaks of closeness, it speaks of affection, it speaks of intimacy. Paul says to us that if we are God's children, and because we are God's children, God has now sent His Spirit to us. God sent His Son to secure our sonship, now He sends His Spirit to us to assure us of our sonship. It's like the way He assures us of our sonship is by the witness of His Spirit living inside us. Because we've been adopted, by God, His Spirit is now readily available to us right here, right now. And not only that, but His Spirit will help us to grasp the privilege of adoption. His Spirit inside us will help us to get this message that I've been struggling to convey and communicate to you. Fortunately, it isn't all down to me. The Holy Spirit inside you helps you experience and live in the good of all that we've been seeing this morning. Verse 7, you're no longer a slave, but a son, and since you are his son, God has made you also an heir. We're now sons and heirs of God, and it's not down to our performance, or our own merit, or our effort is wholly through God's initiative of grace. First, sending his Son to die for us, and now sending his Spirit to live inside us. He sent his Son so we could have the status of Sonship, and he sends his Spirit so we can have the living experience of it. As we draw to a close, I really do believe that God is wanting to come to you with fresh revelation of what it means to be adopted into his family. Uh, I believe he he wants you, not just to walk away with a bit more head knowledge, He, he wants you to grasp deep down whose son, whose daughter, whose child you are. More than anything else, I think that's what God wants to do today. And yeah, over the next few weeks, we'll be looking at closing this gap between what we believe and how we live. We'll we'll look at some of those issues, but this isn't primarily about what we do. It starts with understanding who we are. So right now, I want to invite God's Spirit to bring a whole new assurance to you of who you really are. I want to invite you to stand and we're going to pray.